Right. We are continuing in our uh, sermon series on the book of Acts, and we actually have journals. If you, we have um, Tim and Reed in the back with journals. If you need one of our Acts journals, if you did not pick one up this morning, just raise your hand. They can put one in your hand. So uh, we're going to continue the book of Acts, and if you have your journals, it's page eight. This morning, we'll be in page eight. So let me pray for our time this morning. And what I like to do at times is take one of the Apostle Paul's prayers and make it our own. So this prayer this morning will come from Colossians chapter one. So let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your scriptures, I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Please strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And Lord, that's our prayer. So help us to be empowered. Help us to be a grateful people because you have qualified us, your scriptures say, because of Jesus. Um, you have delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we give you thanks. So I pray this morning, open our hearts and our minds to your word that you would teach us and that our hearts would be given over more and more to you rather than to the things of this world. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. We'll be in verses 12 through 26 this morning. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James... And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Alkeldama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So what are the men who have accompanied us during the, all the time that the Lord Jesus went out in, in, out in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one... Of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, 
and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay, so this morning as we enter into Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, let's ask this question. What time is it? And I'm not asking the question of what time is it this morning here at Deer Creek Church. What I'm asking is, what time is it according to the Bible? Because as we enter into various books of the Bible, it's important to consider what time is it in God's unfolding plan of salvation. To better understand the book of Acts and our chapter in particular, uh, which is the continuation of the work of God and the plan of salvation from the Old Testament and into the New Testament... In order to understand further the book of Acts, we need to understand what came before Acts. And so I want to look at three key conversations prior to the book of Acts. And it just so happens that these three key conversations correspond with various mountains in the Bible. Because in the Bible, God often reveals himself powerfully to his people on mountains. And so as we look at some of the key Moments on mountains in God's plan of salvation. We're going to ask the question, what time is it? So, first conversation, first mountain. Let's go back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We're going to go back to Mount Eden. Now, you may say, Chad, I don't see Mount Eden in my Bible. But I want to make a case for this. So, yes, Mount Eden's not in there. That's my reference to it. But consider this. Uh, Consider that Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, tells us that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Rivers usually flow downward, right? Suggesting that Eden was in elevated position. Further, in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13 and 14, Uh, Ezekiel refers to the Garden of Eden, and I quote, on the holy mountain of God. Okay? So, and with that, we come from Colorado, right? Of course, Eden was on a mountain. So, on Mount Eden, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the question is, what time is it? It's the time of creation, before the fall into sin. It's a perfect, glorious world. God had created this perfect, glorious world, and then he created Adam and Eve in his image. They're the pinnacle of creation. And God places Adam and Eve in the garden. So Eden was a place of God's presence, which means it was a place of worship. Genesis 1, 28 tells us that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. Okay, let's pause there. So what was Adam and Eve to fill the earth with? Babies, yes, right, humanity, but it's more than that. They were to fill the earth with image bearers, worshipers, who would reflect the glory of God in the world. So we can also think of it this way. So God is king over creation. Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's descendants were called to represent his kingdom as they filled the earth with image bearers who would worship the one true king. But what happened? Genesis 3 happened. 
Adam and Eve sinned against God, and as a result, instead of the glory of God spreading across the face of the earth, what began to spread? Sin. Right? So sin begins to spread from Adam and Eve to their kids, Cain and Abel, and on down the line, to Noah and his descendants. And here's what's important. There's this theme that runs throughout Scripture. We see it again. So humanity continued in its wickedness. In fact, uh, Genesis 6-5 says that man was only evil all the time, just continually evil. So God decided to bring judgment by way of a flood. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God, the Scriptures say. So God rescues Noah and his descendants, and after the flood, what's the command that God gives to Noah? Genesis 9-1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Right? Again, spread the glory of God across the face of the earth was the plan. But what did they do instead? They said, hey, come on, let's just settle here. And let's go ahead and build this tower with, which it's, uh, with its top up into the heavens, the Tower of Babel, with its top in the heavens where they do not belong. So they are directly disobedient to the command of God to spread out across the earth. And what is their desire? It is to make a name for themselves rather than for God. That's like, rut row, not good. So what time is it? It is time for God to act. And he does. Confuses their language, begins to scatter the people. So because of their various languages, they're spreading out across the face of the earth. And then what God does in Genesis chapter 2, such an important chapter in the Old Testament, God takes his focus to one man, Abraham. He chooses Abraham and sends Abraham out with a promise that he will bless Abraham with a multitude of descendants and they will become a great nation and God will bless them, God will bless them so that they will be a blessing to the nations. And sure enough, Abraham has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And what was God's plan for the 12 tribes of Israel? God would be their king. He would graciously rule over them. He would protect them. And the 12 tribes were to walk in his ways and be a light to the nations. And by being a light to the nations, the nations would be blessed as they would be drawn to God. That was the plan. Okay, we just covered Genesis in three minutes. Let's do Exodus. All right? Because another mountain is going to come into focus. And you may be thinking, Aren't we supposed to be in Acts chapter 1 and we're in Exodus? Oh, we'll get there. This is all important buildup to Acts chapter 1. So, in Exodus, Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 begins, The people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Do you see this theme? This is the Bible winking at us, saying, you know, are you paying attention? So the mandate to Adam and Eve and then passed on to Noah, as well as this promise to Abraham is coming true, except not so much yet the part about blessing, because at this point, God's people are enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. But I love this in Exodus chapter 1, verse 12. 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. You just can't stop the plan of God. And then this, Exodus 2, 24. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And what's God's covenant? He will be with his people. He will secure his people to himself. He will dwell with his people. So God's people are suffering. God remembers his covenant. What time is it? It is time for God to act. I'm going to say that enough that it just kind of sticks in our head, hopefully all day. What time is it? It is time for God to act. So God sends Moses with a promise. We see this in Exodus 3. I will deliver my people and I will be with you, and I, Moses, and I will be with them. Sure enough, God delivers his people from Egypt, you know, through these ten plagues and parting the Red Sea. You know, like ordinary stuff that God does, right? Um, and he brings them to another mountain, Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God displays his presence powerfully. And in Exodus 19, describes the presence of the Lord on the mountain in this way. There was lightning, thunder, a thick cloud with a trumpet blast, wrapped in smoke because of the Lord descended on in fire. Like, what an awesome sight. And the, and the mountains in the scripture are awesome, right? Because they're only simply pointing to what is even more awesome above the mountains. Right? So, when God's people, so God's people are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and what does God tell the people? He tells Moses to tell them this, Exodus 19, 4 through 6. This is a key verse in the Old Testament. I want us to hear this clearly because this will echo into Acts. Right? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what time is it in Exodus 19? God is at this time establishing Israel as his covenant people, his treasured possession. They are to be a kingdom of priests. How do we understand that? Simply put, what is the role of a priest in the Old Testament? To bring people into God's presence. So they were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They were draw, to draw the nations to God. And then at Mount Sinai, what's the next thing that happens after Exodus 19? It's Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And so what time is it? God gives them the Ten Commandments. It is time for God's people to live in obedience to his commands. And again, what's the goal? That they would be a holy nation, that other nations would look at the way they are governed and say, who is the God that you serve? But over and over in the Old Testament, God's people were warned, do not go your own way. Continue to follow the Lord. But what did God's people do repeatedly? Throughout the Old Testament, they went their own way. They walked away from the Lord over and over. So the question of the Old Testament how can a holy God deal with the problem of the sin of his people so that he can once again dwell with them so the glory of God will spread across the face of the earth? That is the question, the Old Testament. And we're left there in the Old Testament 
of people waiting, waiting on God. So the New Testament opens. The question is, what time is it? It is time for God to act. And when it is time for God to act, he sends someone. We saw that with Abraham. We saw that with Moses. New Testament opens up and God sends his one and only son with promises to deal with their sin, to redeem his people. Jesus begins his earthly ministry by going up on a mountain. If you recall in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus who is greater than Moses, who goes up and teaches his disciples the law, the way it is intended to be understood. So he begins his earthly ministry on a mountain, but then he ends his ministry on a mountain. And I want to bring this third mountain into focus, Mount Olivet, also known as the Mount of Olives. So if you recall, right after the Last Supper, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane that was located on the Mount of Olives. It was there that Jesus prayed and asked the Father if he was willing to let the cup pass from him. That cup is a reference in the Old Testament to the cup of God's wrath reserved for sin. Jesus is saying if there is an Another way other than the cross, Lord, I'll take it. But yet Jesus was clear that he would be faithful to the Father. And he was all the way to the cross. So at the cross, what we understand is that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for his own people. It seemed like tragedy, but this was part of God's plan. Then, after, so Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave. But after his resurrection, Mount Olivet comes back into focus because the resurrected Jesus led his disciples back to the Mount of Olives where he told them, and we see this at the end of the Gospel of Luke in the beginning of Acts. And Daniel talked about this, preached about this last week, right? That Acts chapter 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, right? Referring to the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then what the accounts tell us at the end of Luke, as well as the beginning of Acts, that Jesus ascended in a cloud out of their sight. And in Acts, there's two men, angels, standing there like, hey, disciples, why are you looking up? He's going to return again from heaven. And that brings us into our passage. So everything I just shared was all intro. Don't worry, I'll get done before lunch. Um, But I want us to be mindful. The reason I shared all that, Acts is just a continuation of God's purpose that his plan that we see all the way back to the garden, that God will call a people to himself. He will bless his people. He will call this people and send this people to spread his glory across the face of the earth. His mission will be fulfilled. So the question is, what time is it in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26? It is time. That is wrong. It is time for the disciples to wait. 
I know, that was dirty. Um, Recall at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus, right before he ascended, uh, commanded the disciples to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the gift of the Father. They were to wait in Jerusalem until the promised Holy Spirit would come upon them. And yes, God is going to act powerfully. We're going to see this in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2. But right now, the apostles are waiting. They're in the waiting room, so to speak. So Acts chapter 1, verses 12 is a preparation period. And it's important for us to understand why they are waiting. So let's look at verses 12 through 14. The apostles returned to Jerusalem from, the Mount, uh, from Mount Olivet. They gathered in the upper room. And I, let me just read verses 12 through 14 here. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. All of these with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary and the uh, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So, they are gathered in the upper room. And who's the they? That includes the apostles. And Luke names them because he's given an orderly account, but he only names 11 of them at this point, because Judas has betrayed and is no longer an apostle. And we're going to get to Judas in the next section here. But what are they doing? Verse 14 says, All with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. And the women, most likely, according to Luke's gospel, would be Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, could be some others, They were with him throughout his ministry all the way to the cross, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Jesus' brothers would be his half-brothers, right? Because Jesus was born of Mary, but of God, of the Holy Spirit. But his half-brothers would be the children that came from Joseph and Mary. And what are they doing? They're united together in prayer. Jesus had modeled prayer to them. Often he withdrew to solitary places to pray. We see that throughout the scriptures. He taught them to pray. And what did Jesus actually pray for his disciples in John 17? That his disciples would be one. That they would be united. And in their unity with one another, they would continue to spread the glory of God. Right, that God would witness himself through his disciples. Right? And so we see this come into fruition. Now, let's look at verses 15 through 26 and keep asking the question, what time is it? In other words, what is God up to here in this passage? So verse 15 begins, in those days. So what time is it? What does that mean in those days? This is the time between the ascension of Jesus... And when the Holy Spirit is poured out again in Acts chapter 2, what we'll read. So this is a 10-day period that in those days, and who is it that stood up to address the brothers? It's Peter. This is the same Peter that in Luke's gospel, on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples are arguing together who is the greatest. You can only imagine Peter had some words in the midst of that one. 
right? And so what does Jesus do? He turns to Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you all so he can sift you all, the disciples, like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And after you have returned, meaning after you've denied me three times, but after you return, strengthen the brothers. What time is it? It is now time for Peter to strengthen the brothers. So, in verses 16 through 20, Peter stood up and explained that the scriptures had to be fulfilled regarding Judas. The scriptures that Peter is referring to, and we see this in verse 20, is Psalm 69, which say, May his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it. As well as Psalm 109, let another take his office, meaning the office of apostle. So notice what Peter is saying about Scripture, that the Holy Spirit spoke through David as he wrote these Psalms. And what David wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would come true in Judas. This was all part of God's plan. So what time is it? It's now time for the Scriptures to be fulfilled and for another apostle to be chosen. We see this in verses 21 through 26. What we'll see is the qualifications for this apostle, the job description, as well as the candidates. I'll do this quickly. What's the qualification in verses 21 and 22? So one of the men who have accompanied us us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. So one of the qualifications is that this is a day one meaning with Jesus and the disciples from day one of Jesus' public ministry. Now, what's the job description? Verse 22, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Notice it doesn't say a witness to his teaching as great as Jesus' teaching was. It's a witness to his resurrection. And why? So it changes everything. And I was thinking about this uh, about a month ago. My wife Tiffany and I went to uh, Dallas to visit one of our sons. And while we were in Dallas, uh, we were with one of uh, my son Quentin, one of his friends. Um, and uh, we went into this, uh, went into this store, uh, walking around the downtown area. And uh, as we're walking to the store, Quentin's friend Toby is interacting with uh, the manager of the store. And this is one of those stores that sell a bunch of spiritual things. You know, there's various crystals in there and um, various tarot cards, things of that nature, as well as a lot of instruments and in particular drums. And the man starts uh, playing one of the drums to talk about how certain people groups, this is the way they would invoke spirits. Right, and so he's having this conversation, and so Quentin's friend Toby, we walk out afterwards. He was like, man, Toby's a Christian. He's like, I was just kind of trying to figure out what do I talk about in that moment as a Christian? And as, as we continue to talk, it, it came down to this. When in doubt, talk about the resurrection, right? As Christians, that was what we talk about. A lot of people claim to be God. A lot of people die But only one man rose from the grave. If the resurrection is true, and it is, that is everything. That is everything. And so what we see, the disciples, the apostles, 
They are to be witnesses of the resurrection. And we'll see that throughout the Gospel of Acts. Sorry, did you catch that? God, Acts is not a gospel. Uh, the, the book of Acts, yeah, let's keep going. So, came down to two candidates. All right, verse 23, they put forward Joseph, also known as uh, Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and the other disciple was Matthias. Now, just real quick. So, years ago, when I was reading this, I, Tiffany and I were just married. I was reading through the book of Acts, and this passage right here struck me. Here's why. I went to Tiffany and I said, hey, I got the name of our firstborn son. Whenever we have him, I've got it. And here's the case I'm going to make. His name will be Justice. J-U-S-T-U-S. He's biblical, right? He's right here. And I actually went on, can't believe this, but I went on a cellar on it like this. Just think about it. Every time we do dinner, we give him a plate in front of him. We're like, justice is served. Right? <laughs> so we named our firstborn Peyton. <laughs> Can't win them all, men. Can't win them all. So, Justice was not selected as our baby's name, nor was he chosen as the replacement. It was Matthias. But notice how Matthias was chosen. Verse 24, they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship. So, Jesus had chosen the original 12 and they're praying that the Lord would once again choose this twelfth. Verse 26, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay, casting lots was a practice in the Old Testament. I'm not going to explain it because I don't exactly know how they did it. But it was probably similar, like, think of it in terms of like a coin flip for us, right? So... Why don't we cast lots today? Right? They are about to um, name an apostle and they cast lots. So when we want to name church leaders, why don't we flip coins? Why is this no longer a practice? Like, for instance, just recently we had to select two deacons, um, Steve and Russ, as well as our lead pastor, Daniel. We had to vote on that as well as me as the associate pastor. Why don't we just take a coin? Right? And... Uh, has to be heads because Jesus is the head of the church, right? So, Steve, right? Russ, Daniel, you nervous? And me. All right. Um, why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? What time is it in the scriptures? So the casting lots was before the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. And what was the promise of the Holy Spirit? That he would build the church, guide the church, guide them in wisdom. We don't see the practice of casting lots after the Holy Spirit is given to the church. And I will say, based on my coin flips, that is good for some of you. <laughs> One last question. What is God up to here? Why was it so important that Judas was replaced? Why 12? Was it that 12 is the perfect number for a small group? That's not it. Uh, was it because 11 just couldn't get the job done? Maybe 11 could take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
Not quite to the ends of the earth. You need 12 for that. That's not it either. Luke is writing to Theophilus and to us and saying, look at what God is doing. Do you see? His mission will continue from the Old Testament into this New Testament to be fruitful, multiply, fill, to spread his glory. And remember, God had originally called the 12 tribes to that mandate to spread his glory across the face of the earth. But they failed over and over, and the 12 tribes are now scattered. But God is not finished. He will unite, renew, and empower the people of God. And so God the Father sent the Son. The King has arrived, and his mission will now continue through 12 This time it's the 12 apostles. It is the renewed, united people of God. It is the new Israel, the way Galatians chapter 6 speaks of it, the Israel of God. So if you were to look at my Bible, what you would see underlined from years ago is the, the verse 14 that says, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Right, And you would see verse 22 underlined, the witness of his resurrection, because both of those are so important. But what should be underlined in our Bibles, if we're going to underline, is the name Matthias, because he is the 12th. That is what God is doing. God is saying, pay attention. I have just named the 12th apostle. It is time. It is time for me to act. They're waiting, and we're going to see this. In, in, especially in Acts chapter 2 with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They are waiting for the Spirit and the apostles will be empowered to take the message of God forward and the church will multiply and multiply and multiply. And God will continue to call people to himself. God will continue, if I can use the themes from the Old Testament, to secure people as his treasured possession, right? We see this, uh, this language in 1 Peter chapter 2 of Peter, which is an echo of the Old Testament of Exodus 19 when he says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light to proclaim the excellencies. And what do we proclaim? Jesus died for us. Came to rescue us and he died on a cross. And he rose from the grave conquering our sin if we place our trust in him. Conquering death, conquering Satan. He's at the right hand of the Father and he will come again. He will come again. And the gates of hell cannot prevail. The gospel will spread across the face of the earth. And then the book of Revelation brings one more mountain into focus. It's Mount Zion. It's the holy mountain. It's the new heavens and new earth. It's the gathering of God's people after Jesus returns. But for now, we live between the mountains. See, think about the apostles. They are waiting. And what they are waiting on is the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 1 waiting for the Spirit to empower them. We've been empowered, but we are also waiting. We are waiting for the return of Christ. So we are in the waiting room, so so to speak. 
And the waiting room is hard. The waiting room is often a place of suffering and trials. What is your worst experience in a waiting room? What is it? So for my wife and I, this was back in 2009. We were in a waiting room. Tiffany was 20 weeks along in a pregnancy, halfway through. Notice that whereas the baby had been moving days before, um, there was no movement. So we scheduled an ultrasound, and I clearly remember the conversation that day where I said, in light of eternity, everything's going to be okay, but we're about to receive news uh, that will either relieve us or devastate us. Ultrasound, no heartbeat, devastated. As we cried, all I could do was pray silently over and over, God, you are with us. You are present here. Help us. Waiting is hard, and we will experience very difficult suffering. But what is the promise? See, it's not over. It's not over. We live between the mountains. We can look back in faith at Mount Olivet, where Jesus gave his prayer, Father, let this cup pass from me, but he took it. He took the cup. He took the cross. And he is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for, for us, even in our worst days, our worst waiting room moments. But there's another mountain that's in focus on the horizon. It's Mount Zion, and there's a promise that there will be no more pain, no more suffering, more, no more tears, no more trials. We cannot forget what time it is. We live between the mountains. But until that day, we are waiting. And what did the disciples model as they waited? They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to each other. They devoted themselves to scripture. They had devoted themselves to the witness of the resurrection. And this is our call as well. So what do we do in the waiting room? We continue to pray, continue to night together. We continue to plant churches where the glory of the gospel will continue to go forward. That's what we do as a church. If the resurrection is true, and it is, it's a new lens for us. Everything we see is through a lens of hope. Let's pray and thank God for that. Lord, we give you thanks for the hope that we have, the promises that you are with us, that you through Christ, have secured us as your treasured possession, that the gospel continues to spread across the face of the earth, and that one day knees, all knees will bow, understanding that you are King of kings, Lord of lords. Thank you that we can worship. Thank you that Mount Zion will be a place where there is no more sadness, no more suffering. But Lord, I do pray for us that you would help us in this waiting period, like the disciples, to be found faithful to you, clinging to you. So please, Lord, thanks that you are with us. So help us as a church to bear one another's burdens and to bear witness to your resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.